0: Deuteronomy chapter number six. Let's read verse one down to verse number 12. It says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. If you read verse 4 and 5 with me, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. He goes on to say, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and thy be frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house, and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou digest not, and vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware. And here's a warning, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Let's take a moment and pray this morning. Ask uh, Brother uh, Jerry Flexman if you could open us in prayer. Amen. You may be seated today. Well, last week we began a look at this passage of Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And Deuteronomy 6 is to the Jewish people uh, one of, if not the most important portions of Scripture to them. This is their Romans 10.13, their John 3.16. This is their confession of faith. And it is central to our lives as well. This was a key passage because it laid a foundational truth for which their homes and the society and their nation would find great success. And in Deuteronomy 6, is, the whole book is actually Moses' farewell address to the nation. And he is giving them truths that will allow them as a nation and as families to be sustained and to prosper. Now, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, spinning their wheels. And why? the answer is because they just did not fully trust the Lord. They just could not fully submit their hearts to God. God got them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. This lack of surrender was revealed each time tests would come into their lives, and when the trials and hardships were turned up in their life, it exposed their lack of faith in God. It did not show that God was incompetent, but it showed that their faith was not what it needed to be. I would ask you today, what do the trials of your life expose about your faith in God? When the heat of your life is turned up, what does it reveal about how big your God is? Do you trust Him? Do you stand strong in His Word, stay plugged into the church, plugged into prayer, into serving? Or do you try to figure everything out on your own. A few years ago, I was uh, doing some driving with my oldest daughter. She had her permit. Uh, She usually did an excellent job in driving, but there's something unsettling about being the passenger with a 15 and a half year old girl. (laughs) It's just something unsettling. And uh, I remember we were driving down Second Street, coming down, I think close to where Bisco World is. I'm getting very detailed. I may get in trouble for this later. And, uh, and, and, and you know, I saw a car coming, and, and, and if I was driving, I, I would have probably beat the car, no problem. but it was it was somewhat close. It was close enough to be like, "You know, I, I probably would go, but you know for her, I said, "You know, go ahead and, go ahead and stop here to stop. you know the, the car's coming." Uh, go ahead and stop, honey. Uh, honey, you need to stop. And uh, it went from, honey, stop. Honey, you need to stop. Go! Gun it! Gun it! <laughs> as fast as you can! You know? I'm like, I don't know what was in her head. But she was just kind of casually going. And I was like, "She's, it's too late to stop. You know, when you get to the point where it's like, you, you don't stop on the railroad track. You gun it. okay? <laughs> Floor it! Floor it, you know. It was at that moment, my 15 and a half year old daughter was in the driver's seat. She had the wheel. She was in control and she made daddy very nervous. (laughs) I would ask you today though, when you hit intersections in life that can present sometimes some intense challenges, do you and I treat God like a 15 year old who has their permit? Are you grabbing at the wheel or do you reflect one who trusts God, who can lead you, especially in the challenges? And if you didn't figure it out yet, God's not the 15-year-old with the permit, we are. We would do well to trust God with the wheel of our life. The unsurrendered life, friends, is a dangerous life. The person who does not choose to turn their life fully over to God is keeping a 15-year-old at the wheel. So if you want to stay in the wilderness, turning in circles for 40 years, then doubt God, do not trust Him, and stay in the driver's seat. But if you want God's best for your life, your family, and marriage, you need to have ears to hear what God has to say to you and your family. Last week we saw a message entitled God's Amazing Offer to Your Family. You know, we serve the great and benevolent God. In Genesis 2, who offered man paradise, who Instead, they chose to sin. In Deuteronomy 6, God offers this newly formed nation his blessings. He longs to bless them. He said in Deuteronomy 5.29, he says, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they might fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and their children forever. God wants us to love him and serve him and obey him, not because he needs it, because we need it. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 6 verse 2, he says that they would keep my commandments. He says, he goes on in verse 2 and says that thy days may be prolonged. In verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that thou, uh, that, that ye may increase mightily. That God is a God who blesses. We think about Matthew 5 when Jesus started his earthly ministry. He started not with Statements of judgment, but statements of blessing. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. And he goes on and gives eight beatitudes, which are divine oracles or declarations of blessings to those who would accept God's terms. And blessed are the poor in spirit. You must come to God recognizing your spiritual poverty and that Christ alone can save, blessed are they that are meek, that you're not looking to yourself to be the one who can deliver, but you see God as your deliverer, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, you find Jesus is the only one who truly satisfies, blessed are the peacemakers, and he just goes on and on, when you come to God, you must realize he is a God who will bless you, but there are terms involved which we must submit ourselves to, and it is the wisest thing in life to do so. When Jesus came to Jerusalem the last week of his life on earth, he said, Jerusalem, if you had known the things that belong to your peace, but now they're hid from you. There was so much God had to offer, but they just would not accept it. Today, do you understand that God offers you so much more than what the world can offer? So much more than what you and I can accomplish on our own? Too many dads and husbands are giving their family the best They can instead of God's best. They're trying to be the best dad and husband they can be, but they have not fully surrendered their life to God. And as a result, they do not give their wife and kids the best dad and husband God could have made them into. There's too many moms and wives are giving their family their best instead of God's best. They're trying to be the best mom or wife that they can be, but they have not fully surrendered their life to God. And as a result, they're not giving their husband and children the best wife and mother that God could have and can make them into. Let me ask you, are you that person today spinning your wheels and seemingly getting nowhere you say, but you don't know the difficulties that I have to put up at home, with at home. Uh, so is facing those difficulties with you in the driver's seat better than surrendering your life to Christ and letting him fully lead your life? Do you think God could do more with you if you gave more of yourself to him? If there was ever a day when dads and moms need to come and fully surrender their life to God, this is that day. This is the day when you need to say, you know what, I've come to the end of myself so that I can become to the beginning of who God wants me to be. There is two options for you today. There is what you can do with your life and then what God can do with your life. There is what you can make yourself and there's what God could make you. Uh, Listen, uh, we we are a 15-year-old driver. Sometimes we do it right and many times we get it wrong. But how many times do we have to get it wrong till we say, you know what, enough's enough. I need to surrender all that I am to all that he is. I can tell you, friends, my parents, when they fully gave their life to Christ, it's when transformation, true transformation happened in our family. We played Christian for a long time. We played Christianity. Anybody know what it's like to play Christianity? You go to church, you read sometimes, you listen, you, you, you hear a lot, but you're not a big doer. You're not a big doer. You usually find reasons why you don't read the Bible. You, you, you give excuses why you don't implement those things. You usually see yourself as a victim in life. You usually struggle believing God for many things. When trials come, you put your hand on the wheel before you turn to God in humble prayer to think about fully submitting your life scares you. If fully submitting your life to God scares you, you have blinders on. I mean, it is so insane to think that. It's like, I'm a 15-year-old, you're a professional driver over here, but I feel better with myself at the wheel. Really? So is God so untrustworthy? Are we like the Israelites? You know why they drove in circles? Because they wouldn't let God sit in the driver's seat. Uh, Lord, we can't beat these giants in the wilderness. Uh, Lord, we in the land of Canaan, Lord, we can't get water out here. There's no food. We need to go back to Egypt. And all they could do was spin in circles because God wasn't trustworthy. And friends, I'm telling you the, the day that life changed for me was when I came to a point of full surrender to Christ I said, God, I all that I am, all that I think, all that I say, all that I do, I surrender everything to you. And you say, man, if I do that, I'm going to Zimbabwe next week then. I'm sure he's going to call me into the mission field, deep jungles of the Amazons. You know, I'm going to, what's he going to do? Well, what, what that says ultimately is, I don't trust God for what he would call me to do. And you know what I found? I, I would be willing to go if God wanted me to go because that would be the best thing that he would have for my life. But, but it's, when I gave my life over to Christ, He gave it back so much better. And when I surrendered my marriage to the Lord, He gave it back so much better. And when I gave my children to Christ, He gave them back so much better. You see, God doesn't need anything from us, but we need everything from Him. And the question is, who are you trusting today? Who are you trusting today? Let me give you three things. How... Can you have a thriving family in a falling world? And we looked at this point last week, so I'm going to minimize it, but I have to talk about it for a moment. We must hear God. We must be hearers of God. And that's verse 3, 4, and verse 6. In verse 3, he says, Hear, therefore, O Israel. Verse 4, hear, O Israel. And again, the word hear that we highlighted last week is the Hebrew word shama. It means to hear and listen, not just simply for the purpose of taking in information, but for the purpose of living out what is coming in. It is hearing so that I may obey. Uh, That's why in Deuteronomy 6 verse 3 says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it. Shama, hearing is hearing with the intense purpose of immediate obedience to what you're hearing. Jesus called the people that would hear his word and do his word wise people in Matthew 7, 24. He says, therefore, whosoever heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. But then Jesus compares and contrasts that to somebody who hears it, they're in the right place, they're either reading or listening, they're taking it in, But Jesus said, that's not enough. You can be a fool and do that. He says, what separates the wise from the foolish is the word do. He that, verse 26, Matthew 7, 26, and everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be like a foolish man, build his house upon the sand. You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives a parable of the four soils, sometimes called the parable of the sower. Jesus says there was a farmer who went out to sow in his field and he threw the seed out. And it landed on four different types of soil. One was compacted soil, because in that day in Palestine, on the Galilean hillsides, you would see fields just bumping up one to another. And on the outskirts of those fields would be hard paths that were used as walking paths to get around, and they would be trodden down. And as the farmer sowed the seeds, some would fall on that hard, compact soil. And if you know anything about planting, uh, seeds don't work well if the ground is like rock. And in the second soil was stony soil. Well, in Palestine, there would be hard granite that would sometimes go into the ground, but they would plow up all the stones out of the field. But sometimes there would be shallow earth where the plow could not reach. And so when they planted the seeds, sometimes it would, the the, the root would hit that granite bedrock and it would shoot the plant up and it would look like, man, this is growing up really fast, but because it had no deepness of earth, because it was shallow ground, that plant would die because it did not have enough moisture to sustain it. The third type of soil Jesus talked about in Matthew 13 was thorny soil, where there was a lot of thorn bushes and different overgrowth on the edges of the field, and sometimes when the farmer threw the seeds, some would land there, but when the plant would come up, it would get choked out because of all of the debris that was surrounding it. And then he said, "There was the fourth soil, was the good soil. That was where it landed and tilled up fertile ground, and it produced some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold." Now listen, you don't understand this because we're not so much as an agricultural uh, 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 world today in, in first-century Palestine. But when the Jews heard that in that day, all of them had family members that planted, and they all knew that a eight-to-one ratio was an incredibly great harvest. So when Jesus says, and they brought forth 30, 60, 100 fold, that's 30 to 1, 60 to 1, and 100 to 1 ratios. They were like, whoa, that's like bumper crops. That's incredible growth. And what Jesus is saying is that the majority of the seeds that go out land on soils that do not produce lasting fruit. The majority of people that listen don't have the right soil of heart to receive the Word of God. Jesus is the farmer, the seed is the Word of God, and it lands on different types of soils. And if your heart is hardened, it doesn't matter if Jesus were preaching today, it would not affect you, it would condemn you for rejecting the truth. The second type of soil is so shallow that it will receive it, but it doesn't count the cost. It has no idea of taking up the cross and following Christ. It wants an easy Jesus. I'll throw Jesus in the bag if he'll take me to heaven, but there's no commitment to him. And and the Bible says when the trials of life come, when persecution comes because of the word, they get offended and they bail out. Is that you? Did you ever walk away from Christ when times got hard? Then that just evidence that you were not a true believer. That evidence that you were in that second soil. And the third type of soil is, is that which has all the different cares of life the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of lust and pleasure. It chokes out the word. And is that you? You know somebody like that? Where, where they, they made a profession of faith, but then they got swallowed up by the world and they've bailed out on Jesus long ago. Well, that's an evidence that they're not truly saved. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. He said, those that don't bear fruit, God takes and casts them and burns them up. That's a picture not of, not of disciplining a believer, but judging the lost. And then there's the people who bore fruit, and they bore great fruit. True believers will be fruitful. Listen, if, if, if one thing that's evidenced of life is that there's fruit from it, isn't there? There's got to be something evidencing that. Don't tell me you're a Christian and nobody around you knows it. You, you, you are deceiving yourself. You've made a profession without a possession. It's important to know this. And Jesus is saying, you have to have that type of Shema hearing. You have to have a hearing that produces in your life good fruit. All through Jesus' life, he kept telling them. And at the end of that parable in Matthew 13, he said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Like, listen to what I say. And then, and then he says to his disciples, he says, uh, the, the religious crowd, the Pharisees, he says, they are dull of hearing. They just cannot get it. In Matthew 13, 16, he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And so how, how is your hearing today? What priority have you placed upon the Word of God? Each year we get mums for the front of the church. The farmer that we get them from always emphasizes this. Every time, I should get a tape recorder next time. He'll tell the guys, he said, "Now listen, you make sure you water those plants. He's like, no, I'm not. And, and, and now he knows. Like much more than they know because the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the different staff guys that are watering those plants, they're, they're not farmers, but he is. And he's like, you don't understand. Those, those mums need water every day. You, know, you need to understand, like they need good amount of water every day. And if you don't water them every day, they will start to die. They will dry up. You need to, I mean, he re- and I love it. I'm like, put it to him, baby. Just let him know. And he's real gracious about it, but he's letting them know. Now, I want to ask you a question. If, if moms need water every day to sustain their life, how much more does, does, does our families and our lives need the water of the word to be sustained? Would to God, that dads would have that intensity and moms would have that intensity and families would elevate the intensity. Uh, did, did you get water today? Did you, did you receive the nourishment from the Word today? Do you know that you will begin to dry up if you don't have that sustaining you? Do you understand the importance of that? And if you don't have that, there needs to be a call from mom and dad to say, listen, how's your hearing, son? How's your hearing, daughter? If you don't have that kind of truth flowing into your life, you are going to dry up. And we have a lot of dried up families because the water of the Word is not being fed into the home, starting with dad. Starting with mom, starting with parents. They're caught up in what's going on in politics or when a sports team or something going on with with other things around the world and and, and those things need to be dealt with at different measures. But we need to prioritize that which is our life's sustaining entity, which is the word of God. In John 15:5, Jesus said, I am the vine. He said, You're the branches. He said, he that abideth, meno is the Greek word, he that remains in me, and I in him the same bringeth forth just a little bit of fruit. Is that what Jesus taught? No, he's a 30, 60, 100 type of God. Abundant, much fruit, for without me, how much can we do? It's nothing. And how do we abide in Christ would be my question. How do we abide in Christ? Because in John 15, verse 6, he talks about those who don't bear any fruit burn up. And then in verse 7, he says, if ye abide in me, and my what? His what? So if Christ abides in us, what will abide in us? His words. And you ask what you will, and it will be done to you. You have to have the word flowing in. So let me ask you, how much water have you received this week? How's your intake been? Let me ask you this. Do you even know how much water your children are receiving? Do you know if your spouse has been reading? Do you have any time where you sit down and say, hey, how you been doing with the Word this week? We, we, uh, are, one reason we're launching this Lighthouse 242 ministry is, is to make an exerted effort to bring the Word of God into the hearts of people. We, we've created a book that's about 150 pages long because everything we do is short. But in that book that we're going to begin to offer uh, somewhere around uh, early January, because it's going to launch in February is a book that will have places where you can write sermon notes. It'll have the calendar of the Bible. It will have three weekly journal entries that you can make. It'll have a place for a prayer journal. All of this will be part of, of getting God's people into God's word in a practical way and then having a place where they can have accountability and what we call a discipleship group on Sunday nights from 5 to six thirty. And if you want to grow your life, it doesn't it does not happen separated from God's spiritual ecological system. Everything in the world is built around an ecosystem. Plants have roots in soil... From clouds above that produce rain, from sun above, everything begins to work together in this ecosystem, and God calls the church a body. And the body is not individual parts, but is part of the collective whole, and we feed and minister one to another, and you have to be part of God's ecological, spiritual system to where you're both receiving and giving. But you give anyone in life where they're receiving and not giving, and it will kill them. You ever seen stagnant water? You know the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee? It's interesting. I've been there. So the the Jordan River flows from north of Jerusalem all the way down, from Caesarea Philippi all the way down through, feeds the lowest body of fresh water on the planet, which is the Sea of Galilee, extremely nutrient-rich, has incredible amounts of fish in it. That's why fishing was a thriving business there. But then it has an outlet at the southern port, and it, southern portion of the sea, and it flows all the way down, descending until it flows into the Dead Sea. You know the difference between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee? The Sea of Galilee is thriving with life. The Dead Sea has nothing living in it. Nothing. Nothing. I remember when the Jewish guide was coming, and I was like, hey, what's that guy doing fishing out there? He's like, really? I was like, I'm sure there's nothing living there, right? Believe me. Anyway, I thought it was funny at the time, and. Uh, The difference is this, the Sea of Galilee receives and gives where the Dead Sea only receives. And if you only receive, you will be a dried up Christian. You need to be pouring into somebody. You ever had somebody say this, you know what, nobody really ministers into my life. Well, that would only result because you're not ministering to other people's lives. I don't even understand that. When people are like, you know, people aren't, you know, I'm like, well, if you're not getting poured into... You know, you know the best, best way to get poured into? You want me to give you a secret? It's pouring into other people, isn't it? Laverne knows because she does it. You begin to pour into other people, and you, you are the greatest recipient. Go, go mentor someone. And guess what? You mentored your own soul. You're like, man, I got more out of that than they did. I feel like that every service. I'm like, I feel like I'm the biggest beneficiary of studying the Word of God, preaching, and when God fills up my heart, I'm just giving you the overflow of what He's done for me. Listen, friends, we are, a, we, we are a body of Christ, and we have the joy of serving one another, and it starts at home. Secondly, not only hearing, I told you that'd be a real short point. Secondly, fearing God. Not only hearing God, but fearing God. Look at verse 2, six, verse 2. He says, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. To keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy sons in all the days of thy life. Deuteronomy 6 verse 13 says this, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Now what is the fear of the Lord? It's the Hebrew word hira and it speaks of standing in awe and astonishment a reverence or godly fear it speaks of something or someone that is so awesome but at the same time terrifying that you would pay reverence to them by your holy awe of them and with the lord as the subject it captures two key ideas one of shrinking back in fear and the other of drawing close in adoration weirsby says the fear of the lord means reverence for god respect for his word a willingness to listen and a promptness to obey. A.W. Tozer rightly says the fear of God is astonished reverence. Right fear of God is an awe and admiration which manifests itself in unflinching obedience. And at the very heart of the family unit must be a holy reverence and fear of God. God must be placed at such a high level of reverence in your home. And it's, and it's that reverence that produces righteous living. When you come to Proverbs, God places fear as the starting point. He says, if you want wisdom, come to me. And he says, and let me tell you how to get it. Proverbs 1.7, he says, the fear of Yahweh or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise that. They despise wisdom and instruction. The word beginning there, is a, is a uh, Hebrew word. It can mean two things. It can be the beginning or the first step in a course of action, like a starting line, like a starting point, such as it's used in Proverbs 1, 7. But a second meaning it can have not just beginning as the starting line, but it can mean the chief thing, like the principal thing, not simply where you start, but how you always start. Proverbs 4, 7 says it like this. Wisdom is the principal thing. So wisdom is, is not only the beginning point, the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning point, but the fear of the Lord is actually the principle we are to live by. Fear of the Lord is, according to the Bible, not only where you start, but, but you continue in it. Like the fear, of the, God, the fear of the Lord is not like a starting line that you walk away from, but rather like a teacher that you start with learning from them and you continue down the road of instruction. Just as plants need sun and rain to start life, so they need sun and rain to sustain life. We therefore start with fearing God and we're sustained by fearing God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. And Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, why, why is the fear of the Lord so essential to both start and live with this fear of God? And you need to understand this. One central truth about fear is this. And, and we're living in days that people would say, these are fearful days. These are troublesome days. And what's interesting is this. I was, I was talking to a, a, a very uh, intelligent individual this last week about it. Uh, he, said, he said, you know, there's some reports that are coming out about apathy growing so substantially in the world. Because there's just so much hitting people that they finally are like, you know, I just don't care anymore. I just don't care. I'm just going to do for me and my own, and, and I don't care anymore. And it's like people get so overwhelmed. It's the COVID stuff. Now, WHIO came out, and doctors are wanting you to have a vaccine, you know, COVID shot again. And it's like, yeah, I don't know that I want to buy that thing. <laughs> I'll keep my blood to myself, right? Um, there's a rabbit trail right now. It's like, Josh, you want to come down? I was like, I don't know tempted right now. You know what's interesting in the Amish communities? (laughs) uh, Just take time to study this out. I'll let you play on the rabbit trails. Uh, Why don't they have autism and ADHD inside of um, Amish communities? And why don't they have any vaccinations that they have? And why doesn't the CDC come out and tell you this? And why... There's, there's so many things that could be expounded about that, but we're not talking about that today, so Josh, come back. But there is a lot of things that can cause fear, economic fear, worldwide threats of, of, of military action. Uh, when you turn the media on and you find out like some kid got beat up, I, I just saw this last week where a boy stood up against uh, some bullies that, that picked his friend up, like threw him in the trash can, and this little kid stood up against these kids, and there was 14 kids that beat the kid to death. and They video it. I mean, that is just you're, the fear, right? The injustices. Now, one thing that fear does is it produces control. You need to know this. Whatever or whoever we fear most will have the most control over our lives. They will begin to determine the decisions we make, what we do, how we talk, how we live, how preachers actually preach. The person or thing we fear most will be the most authoritative thing or person in our life. Now, when that fear is directed toward God, the product of fearing God produces first and foremost an unwavering obedience to his word. That's why Deuteronomy 6 verse 2 says that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments. Jesus even said in Matthew ten twenty eight, you say, oh, I thought we're supposed to love God. You know, we're, we're not supposed to have a fear of God. Well, Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus says, fear not them which kill the body. Anybody Anybody would be afraid if you came down at night and you heard some big feet stomping through the house? And and they're like, you knew they had a gun? Might be a little worried, right? And, and, And Jesus says, don't fear them that can just kill your body. Don't be afraid of that. Well, that seems about like one of the most fearful things. He says, why not? He says, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, direct your soul from horizontal to a vertical fear. Because the person to whom we ascribe most authority is the person we fear most. But I thought we're to obey God out of love and not fear. You need to understand this. Fear and love go hand in hand. They are not... Love is the opposite side. Fear is the... Or I should say, love is the positive side. Fear is the negative Love prompts one to do what pleases God, and fear keeps one from doing what displeases God. Listen to how Moses said it in Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. He says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? What does he require of you? But to fear the Lord thy God, what will that produce? To walk in all his ways, and to what? Oh, we don't have the verse up there. (laughs) And to love him... And what that proves, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Moses puts fear and love together, and guess who else does? Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus teach that we're to love God supremely and fear God supremely. They're not mutually exclusive commands. They're two sides of the exact same coin. Does your life reflect a fear of God? Do you have a high view of God, a great reverence for God? What would you point to in life and say, that evidence is that I have a great reverence for God? If fear of God is where knowledge and wisdom begin, what does it say if you don't live with biblical fear and reverence? What are you living without? The fear and reverence of God in a home means the actions of the home would be defined by a reverence of God. Our schedules, what you do with your life, should be defined by your reverence of God. What's our family going to do this week? How, how the, how the, how the schedule is going to lay out, how, how's our uh, attitudes at home, our actions, our words, our communications, how we resolve conflict, all of that should be defined, first of all, by a reverence, a high reverence of God. Let me ask you, did you ever do something this week that if Pastor Josh were in the room, you'd say, I probably wouldn't have done that. Anybody? Yeah, you don't want to, you get that little hand raised like this. Yeah, everybody's like, I ain't raising her hand, I ain't raising my hand right? Everybody in here would probably raise their hand. And it's like, I'm just another sinner saved by grace, but it would keep you because there's a sense of reverence for like, hey, I wouldn't want to violate this situation. You know, I just wouldn't want to do that. And, and how much more for Jesus to be in the room? We would just say, ah, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Sometimes I'll sit down with somebody and hold them accountable for something they're struggling with. And I'd say, would you do that if I was in the room? They're like, no way. I'm like, why not? I'm like, because. Don't even ask me something like that. And, and, and you see, we live life with a low view of God in our life, and that's why we have a low view of the penalty and consequence of sin. Obedience is lessened. We must, we must elevate our reverence for God. Now, the blessing of fearing God is, is tremendous. Proverbs, is a, in, in large part, compares the wise from the foolish. What, who are wise people and who are foolish people? And what you find when you read the book of Proverbs, I would encourage you to do this sometime when you read through Proverbs, take a little highlighter out and highlight every time you see the word fear come up. Because it's like a artery pumping life and blessing throughout the book of Proverbs to the wise person. And the fool is the one who cuts off the life flow of the fear of God from their life. So here's some blessings the fear of God produces according to Proverbs. Proverbs. It produces knowledge, according to proverbs one seven It is where you find the knowledge of God in chapter two five. It causes a hatred of sin and a cause of you to depart from evil eight thirteen and sixteen verse six. It is the beginning of wisdom, it prolongs your life, it produces a strong confidence in the lord it 's called a fountain of life that is more valuable than any earthly treasure. It leads to life and brings Full satisfaction, it produces riches and honor in your life, and it causes you to avoid and envying sinners. And the list just continues: God will bless you, and fear of God will incredibly enrich your life. You know, one interesting thing about fear is this: Anything that we fear in the horizontal realm has a backlash of producing anxiety. When you fear things in the world, like wars, uh, you you fear financial things, you fear sickness. When when we were in that COVID thing uh, for a couple years of of that, there were some people paralyzed by fear. Fear was gripping them. And it it causes anxiety, causes worry. And if you don't know anything about your body, uh, when you get stressed, it assaults your immune system. That's why when you get, you ever get real stressed out, what do you end up getting? Sick, a cold or something else, right? And so uh, it, it, it attacks that. Well, the only place where it has a paradoxical effect is when you have it vertically aligned. When you take fear and you direct it not toward the things of life, but toward God, it will produce peace, it's the only place when you direct your fear that you have the resulting consequence of incredible peace. It was when, John, when Peter got out of the boat and he was casting his eyes on the greatness of Christ that he feared Christ most and he didn't even care about the waves. But when he cast his eyes on the waves and he belittled the greatness of Christ and his fear was directed toward the waves, it caused great anxiety to cause him to sink. Many of us are sinking and some people isolate themselves and they, they, they think, well, I'll just pull away from everything. And they just kind of, oh, a, a, a sacred, like a safety net they try to put around themselves. God never called you to that. We don't have to live with fear. You know, COVID, I, I never, I didn't live with fear for those two years or whatever that was. And as a church, we fired the church back up after about four weeks of of taking a break to make sure this thing wasn't everything they said it was, and and to make sure we didn't have thousands of people that would die. And when all that started to come to pass, and obviously there were people that had died of COVID, obviously it's a real disease. I'm not belittling that, but I'm just telling you, this world pumps fear into your life so that they can control you. They get it, right? Right? But we as Christians don't live like chicken littles. The world is not our shepherd. Christ is, and he cares for his sheep. You believe that this morning? We don't have to live with what they tell us with the fear. We can live with the peace of God. The day before Jesus died, he said to his disciples, Peace, I leave with you. 24 hours, I'll be nailed to a cross, but peace, I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That is supernatural, providential, God-given, world-doesn't-understand kind of peace. And if you don't have that peace, it's because you don't have the right fear. You understand? This is true. This is true. You know, all through the Bible, and I don't have time because I've talked about some rabbit trails today, but uh, when when you um, and I place our fear in the things of the world, it begins to throw all kinds of things off in our life. That's why Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says this, the fear of man brings a snare, but you put your trust in the Lord, you'll be safe. When you begin to fear men, it will mess you up. That's why Deuteronomy one twenty one he says, Fear not, neither be discouraged. Dread not, neither be afraid of them. Deuteronomy 3.22. Ye shall not fear them. Deuteronomy 7.21. Thou shalt not be affrighted at them. For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. He kept telling them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the surrounding nations. Don't be afraid of them. In Scripture, you find many of God's men being snared by fear. Abraham was snared by fear, right? He said his wife was his sister. Peter got... Snared by fear and he denied Christ three times. These happen throughout the Bible. We will all have times of worldly fear, but we need to recognize that as a sin and it's a problem of misplaced fear. But sadly, instead of fearing and reverencing God, letting him have control, people fear letting God have control of their life. It's an incredible thing to me. Is that you today? Do you fear letting God have control of your life? If you, if you are, like that is, that is living in a delusion. I can't say it any nicer. I could say it in a more strict way. But it's, it's delusional. It's a 15-year-old behind a wheel, and you have Mario Andretti over here. He's like, hey, I'll drive it to speed limit. I can drive your car. And you're like, no, I got this. And you might want to let him in, in the driver's seat, right? I mean, there, there's other. God is the professional here. He's God. We are a child. And let me say this, giving ourselves the aptitude of a 15-year-old is overdoing it right? We should be terrified to be in control of our lives. We could so quickly make a mess of our lives. We can take one problem and turn them into 10. Pastors have done that. One reason our country has sunk so far is because you have pastors that are more afraid of people than they are of God. And they will not say things. They will not say things from pulpits because they're so afraid of what people will think. You know the result of that? We have a pseudo-evangelical Christian church in America. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research do studies every couple years to see the spiritual state of the church in the world. They do it every two years. Here's what they found in 2022. They asked the question, does God learn and adapt to different situations? Americans, 51% agree. Christians, 48%. Also, God must not be omniscient. Secondly, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and so forth. 56% of Christians said yes. That's insane. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Americans, 71%. Christians, 65%. Uh, Gender identity is a matter of choice. Americans, 42%. Christians, 37%. You, You know why? Pastors will not talk about it. They will not stand up and say God made them male and female because they're afraid somebody will get up and walk out. There's times when people get up and walk out of Lighthouse Baptist Church. I would rather a person get up and walk out than Christ get up and walk out. I don't know if I've told you this before. I love you, but I'm not here to please you. I'm here to please him. You're very secondary to me. He's primary. He's primary. I know who sits on the front row and watches. I know who listens. And I know I will be held accountable to him. And the greatest way I can love you is to love him most and to lift up his word most. It will not benefit you by deceiving you and by culturalizing scripture. We don't need the church to look more like the world. We need the church to look more like Jesus. A lack of fear and reverence for God as a result of a low view of God. You know, we had, a, we had somebody just this month who got baptized at Lighthouse. They left the church years ago because we preached against homosexuality and, you know, we, we love homosexuals. So we tell them the truth. We love them too much to lie to them. We're going to tell them the truth. They need to repent and trust in Christ. That's what the Bible says. We, I'm not going to tell a liar or an adulterer or a fornicator or anything else. I'm going to tell them they need to repent and trust in Christ, right? That those are sins and those things need to be repented of. And that person got upset and left. Well, they came back because they realized the world is so messed up and the pain of life ended up bringing them back. And and they gave their life to Christ, left that homosexual lifestyle, surrendered their life fully to Christ. God has dumped blessing upon them. And last week they were baptized, celebrating the grace of God in their life. Now they've been clean for years from drugs and that lifestyle. Isn't the grace of God the liberating truth? And the last thing I need to give you today is not only hearing God, fearing God, but loving God. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says this, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. The word love there is translated in the the Septuagint as agapeo, but it's a different Hebrew word, ahabe here. And, and And its first use is in Genesis 22, verse 2, where God says to Abraham, Take now thy son, thy only son, whom thou Ahibs or lovest, we would say in the Greek in the New Testament, agape, where you love supremely, that you love so much. And notice the repetition of the superlative in in verse 5. He says, with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might. This is holistic love, total love. It's total devotion, total commitment, holding nothing back. And what does it mean, heart, soul, and mind? Well, the heart is the inner part of the man. The heart is the seat of man's affection and their will. It is what we would call the control center of a man. The soul is the nefesh. It is the life of the man, his consciousness, breath, essence, and his being. And then might is the zeal, if you would. That's the total commitment of the person. The the word might there is from a Hebrew word that means much or exceedingly or, or excessively. It's, it's the energizing of that. And so in conclusion, to love God this way is to love God with all of your will, your inner man, all of your life, consciousness, and being, and all that you can live exceedingly that way and love exceedingly that way. This is a call to recognize and respond to God as the most important person in your life. Uh, he is the chief purpose for why you do everything in your life. This kind of love defines you. So I would ask the question, does this type of love in your life for God define you? Does it define you? Does your life reflect this kind of love for God, that he's the most important person in your life? Listen, if your marriage is struggling, the first question is not what they need to change, but do I love Christ supremely? Did you get that? Next time you have a marriage conflict, don't ask the question, I can't believe, and put expectation on them. Rather, draw a circle around yourself and say, do I love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my might? Because if I'm not right with God, why would I think they would be right with God? Well, you don't know what it's like living with somebody that treats me disrespectfully, they're unkind, they're... Well, do you think then, for you not loving God, that's a good starting point? Shouldn't you start with the only person you can actually control, which is you? And friend, that's where we must begin. I can't change my wife, but I can change me. I, I, listen, the, the, the best way to remedy that is not the 15-year-old at the wheel. It's to have God at the wheel, and that's when you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have so many marriages today. Listen, being assaulted by Satan. He's coming for you. Believe me. If you lived my life for a few weeks, you'd be like, Wow. There's a lot, there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot, and it's because people don't love God, and they keep trying to fix their spouse, they think it's them, and they're going to find out one day before God, it was never outside of you, the problem was inside of you. Stop putting expectations on them, and put them on yourself, please, Do you know that when you choose to sin, you cause a great drag on a lot of people around you? You pull a lot of people down. You slow them down. But you ever been around somebody that loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? How much they benefit your life? Right? How much they encourage you, edify you. I can tell you, friend, if you love your family, love God most. There is nothing, nothing in the world that will produce a better outcome. Uh, Did Jesus believe this kind of love? Matthew 10, 37, listen to how he put it here pretty intense. He says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. That's pretty intense, isn't it? People say, why love my children most? Oh, really? Do you think teaching your little Johnny that the world revolves around him, that he's the center of the universe is really good for him? You you want that eight-year-old to turn into an 18-year-old that says, you know what? The world revolves around me. My mom told me that. She did everything I wanted her to do. She gave me everything I wanted. She thought I could never do no wrong. Anybody want to marry that guy? No, no, no. Anybody want to marry the little girl that was a princess and and, and everything revolved around her. She was never told no and she just, it was all about her. Anybody want to marry that girl? No. Those kind of people will turn on their parents every time. And if you've been playing that kind of a parent role, I can tell you, you felt the pain of that child that you would not discipline, you would not say no to. You f- You allow pride to fill up in their heart. They become self centered narcissists, and it destroys so much. They always turn on the parents. Believe me, I counsel this stuff all the time. It's, it, and the parents are like, My kid has these problems. No, the problem's not with your kid, the problem starts with you, mom and dad. We're going to talk about this next week, so I come back for fun. We're going to talk about passing our faith on to the next generation. That's where verse 6 through 12 come in. But, but understand this. If you love your child, you will teach them to be humble, that the world doesn't revolve around them, that they're not a demigod in the home, that they, there is only one God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to be patient. Teach them to be kind. Teach them to be selfless. Greatest things you can teach them. Now, Jesus taught there's a way that you know if, if, if you love him. He said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. How do you know you love God? If you obey him. John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he that is that love me. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we would keep his commandments. Why did he tie love to commandments? Because love is action. It's something you do. It's something you do. Love is a verb, not an adjective. And so at the heart of a nation and family, you must love God. Let me give you an equation. The more you hear God, the more you will learn about God. The more you will learn, learn about God, the more you will love God. And the more you love God, the more you will obey God. That's why you have to start with the water of the word. You've got to fill your home up with it. You've got to douse your home. You gotta, and I can tell you this much, parents. Our children will never get it if we don't get it. It's a trickle-down effect, isn't it? Why would I expect them to go where I have not grown? I must love him intensely. And some of us have not done that. Who's at the wheel of your home? Our children and our parents or our family and our wives and our husbands need some somebody better than a fifteen year old behind the wheel. We need Christ desperately. The world's gonna get worse, believe me. The Bible says the world will get worse and worse. People will be deceived and getting deceived. I believe we're living in the generation before Christ comes back. If there's ever a day that you say, you know what? I cannot afford not surrendering to Christ. I am terrified of being in control. I need Jesus to lead my life. I need to have him sit on the throne of my heart. I need to commit all that I am to all that he is. You could leave here today saying Jesus is Lord, or you could leave here today saying I'm still driving. Which one do you think will bless your home most? (music) you. <music>